Thank you very much, Gary, for your invitation to come and to speak, or I hope to preach. Um, and the title is, it's not about the music, Growing Conservative Churches. I like the title, and I hesitate at the title. I like it because it seems to get to the root of our loss of nerve as evangelicals are sort of rooting around for a, a quick fix, a magic formula, a silver bullet, which will bring success. But it's not about the music. And I hesitate at the title because we're not seeking to grow conservative churches, but Christ-shaped churches. And they come in all shapes and sizes. And also the title feels a little as though we're promising a better yesterday. It's not about the music, growing conservative churches. And I really want to divide our time uh, this afternoon into three. And the first thing to say is this, our present discouragement. Why are so many churches attracted to the quick fix? And perhaps the answer that stands out is discouragement. As Bible Christians, we are disappointed people. In the UK, we're marginalized, ignored. Many Bible churches are small. They're getting older. They see few conversions. Time's running out. What's gone wrong? Has God abandoned us? Are we under judgment? Are we missing a trick? And so some churches, they pull up the drawbridge and they pray for revival. Others become preoccupied with personalities and movements where things seem to be happening. If we can hitch up our church to this name, to this movement, then we'll go places. So you look at a church's bookstall and one name keeps cropping up again and again and again. And some churches talk themselves up. I don't know if you remember, you have to be a certain sort of age, I think, a sort of Pathé News. And this is a sort of evangelical version of Pathé News. You know, the bombs are falling, but the plucky Brits say times have never been better. Business as usual. And you read some evangelical literature, and it's unrelentingly jolly and upbeat. And, of course, this question, are we missing something? What will turn the tide? Is there a formula for growing churches? But it's not about the music. And surely part of the problem is how we perceive the blessing of God. The seven churches in Revelation. Which church is God blessing? Is it Sardis, the big church? The church with a name, the church that everyone knows? Or is it Philadelphia? The little church, where nothing seems to happen. Which church is God blessing? And to the angel of the church of Sardis, write, These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, that you have a name, that you're alive, but you're dead. And to the angel of the church of Philadelphia, write, I know your works. See, I've set before you an open door, and no one can shut it, for you have little strength, 
have kept my word and have not denied my name. Jesus reserves his his unreserved praise for the little church. So, brothers, we need to be careful about how we assess the blessing of God. Numbers, conversions, growth are not necessarily the divine imprimatur. You can read the biography of Edward Irving. Big London church. 200 members in, in six months. But the church was heading for the rocks. And how we view the blessing of God frames everything. If we're seeking to grow Christ-shaped churches, we'll come to one conclusion. But if we slightly shift the focus and seek to grow successful churches, measured by numbers, young people, respected in the community, then maybe we'll come to another conclusion. And we'll start looking for the silver bullet. And maybe that is the music. But the New Testament says virtually nothing on that subject. And by shifting the focus slightly, we end up losing the plot. So our second thing to say is this. Let's look at some principles, a biblical framework. Come with me to the reading which we had, Matthew chapter 13 and the parable of the sower. Now Matthew in his gospel is writing to Jews. His theme is the kingdom of heaven. And here in chapter 13, he speaks of it 12 times. And of course, the Jews are waiting for the day when the reign of God would break in upon this cursed world. It would be the end of, of sorrow and death and the curse. And it would be a new age of joy and peace and blessing. And best of all, God with us. At last, the long-awaited salvation has come. May God set up his kingdom in your lifetime was the blessing. And you could ask the Jews, how did they expect the kingdom of God to come? Well, they were hazy in lots of the details, but there was a sort of general agreement that Messiah, the king, he will intervene in triumph. And when he does, it will be sudden, dramatic, cosmic. In a moment, the old age will pass and the new age will come. That was their expectation. And it shaped everything. But of course that's not how the kingdom of heaven comes. Messiah is here. God's reign is breaking in now. The kingdom of heaven has begun. But contrary to the Jewish expectations, the old age of sin and death has yet to pass. The two ages overlap. The kingdom has begun, but it's not yet been consummated. You know, it's the already but not yet. God's kingdom comes progressively. And so Matthew is writing to resolve in Jewish minds this tension between what they expect to happen and what actually is happening. Here in chapter 13, there are eight parables which tell us what to expect when the reign of God breaks in. To be honest, all eight parables address this subject. But we're going to look at the parable of the sower. Our time is short. I'm assuming you know the parable very well. And so you're familiar with the narrative. And so we're going to go straight into Jesus' explanation. I'm preaching from the New King James Version. At our church, we use the New King James and the ESV. Um, 
with these glasses. I need to use one I can see. So we're going to look at the New King James. So Jesus' explanation. Chapter 13, verse 18. Jesus says, Hear, sorry, therefore hear the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom. So the seed that is sown is the word of the kingdom. It's the word of the king. So how does God's kingdom come? It comes through God's word. But God's word scattered and sown. The word is proclaimed, taught, explained, applied. And when it's scattered, it falls on four different grounds. It meets with four different responses. Why four? Well, four in scripture is shorthand for the world. The four corners of the earth, the four winds. So the whole earth can be summed up by four soils. So verse 19, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, then the wicked one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is he who received the seed by the wayside. And in, as you'll know, it's a picture of hard-hearted hearers. They hear God's word, but it goes no further. There's no impact, no response, no change. And the evil one swoops down and snatches the word away. Verse 20, but he received the seed on stony places. This is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures only for a while. For when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. So here are people who respond immediately to the gospel. Says Jesus, they receive the word with joy. But it doesn't last. Why? Because there's no root. So the word, it penetrates the surface soil of the heart. There appears to be a change. The, the emotions are stirred. But underneath the heart is as hard as ever it was. Their hearts have never been broken. They're happy to follow the king. But on their terms. And as soon as they suffer for the king, they don't want to know. Verse 22, now he who receives seed among the thorns is he who hears the word, and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and he becomes unfruitful. So here are folk who start well. The word appears to, to root in their hearts. There's change. They appear to be saved. They join the church. They get involved. They maybe go on to become preachers and pastors. But in the end, it comes to nothing. No lasting fruit. Why? Because their hearts are infested with thorns. Something or someone becomes more important to them than the king. Always been there, growing alongside the word, competing for their attention, for their affections. But because it's never dealt with, because it's never ruthlessly uprooted, it's only a matter of time before the word is choked. And there's no lasting fruit. So much promise. And these people do get what Christ is saying. But for them he's not the be-all and end-all. And so priorities become confused 
and Sundays become crowded with other things. And they have less and less time for Jesus, but they always seem to find time for the things that they want to do. And little decisions without Christ soon become crowning decisions. And they walk out on him altogether. Why thorns? Well, we'll come back to that. Verse 23, but he receives seed on the good ground as he who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and produces some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. Here are good ground hearers. So what's the key difference? What makes a, a good ground hearer? Well, they do more than hear. They get it. They understand. The word roots deep in their heart and becomes a part of them. Indeed, it transforms them. And because it's Christ's word, they soon begin to think Christ-shaped thoughts, speak Christ-shaped words, live Christ-shaped lives. They're real disciples, bearing Christ-shaped fruit, beautiful fruit. And churches composed of such people, individually and corporally, overflow with the loveliness of of Jesus. It's a harvest of Christ-likeness that exceeds all expectations. He receives seed on the good ground as he who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and produces some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. The kingdom has come. So let's say some obvious things under this second point. I don't think anything I'm going to say is new. But we need to say these things. And number one, how does the kingdom come? And since the kingdom advances in this world through uh, planting and growing Bible churches, it's the only institution in this world that God has promised to bless these colonies of heaven, how do we grow churches? Behold, the sower went out to sow. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom. So, brothers, if we would see conversions, disciples made, disciples taught, disciples growing fruitful, Christ-shaped lives, churches which are fruitful and Christ-shaped, then we must sow the seed of the word. Kingdom life, by the Spirit, advances through the word of the kingdom. Now, maybe you know a church where a brother has been laboring for years. When he went there, it was small, and he did everything. Well, after many years, the church is still small, and he's still doing everything. Why? Well, because he did everything, he didn't have time to prepare the teaching and preaching of the word. Sowing God's word just hasn't been the priority. There's been so much else to do. And because he hasn't been sowing the word, well, if less seed is going in, then less fruit will come out. And God's people haven't been taught, equipped, haven't gone on to fruitful maturity. Maybe if he'd cut out some of those other things and given himself to the word, 
He might have grown two or five or ten or fifty people, Christ-like people, to labor alongside with him, sowing the word. So, brothers, I know it's obvious, and I know I'm teaching grandmas to suck eggs, but we must give our time, energy, focus to preparing and proclaiming God's word. And there's a sense in which we must let the word do the work. There is a kind of preaching that somehow through the filter of the preacher, what comes out isn't what's gone in. Someone's on holidays, I go visiting churches, and it seems to be that the topography of Scripture, these wonderful mountains and these valleys, what, what brothers do is they flatten the mountains and they build up the valleys. So all you get is a sort of undulating landscape that just lulls and people into a, it's like a cradle, rocks them to sleep. And we must plead with God for more of His Spirit. We don't just scatter the Word, rub our hands and say, job done. Not my responsibility anymore. I've, I've, I've done what I need to do. I've just sown the word. We need to pray, don't we? Lord, come down. We need to pray it into the hearts of our people, into the hearts of our community. I was with you in much weakness, says Paul, in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. That your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So we preach the word. We preach it by pleading with God that the word would do its work by his spirit. And what does the Apostle Paul want? What does he want to leave ringing in the ears of, of Pastor Timothy? Preach the word. It's interesting the letter before, the first letter, what Paul says, he says, keep a close watch on yourself and on your teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will both save yourself and your hearers. Timothy, do you want to save yourself? Do you want to save your hearers? They're hearing what you preach? Then keep a close watch on yourself? Well, that's not enough. Keep a close watch on the teaching. And he says, persist in it. If you want to save your hearers, teach the word. Persist in it. So, brothers, sow the word. And the second thing to say is this, as we're hearing this afternoon, the work is plodding. If you give yourself to sowing the word, Sundays and house to house and other occasions, snatch conversations over a coffee, email, whatever it might be, it feels so ordinary, doesn't it? Mundane. Plodding. A bit like, well, a bit like sowing seed. All that back-breaking effort. And what have we got to show for it? And because there's a delay between sowing and reaping, that's how harvests work, I may spend my whole life sowing. I may never live to see harvest. Hans Igedy went to Greenland. Broke his heart over it. Laboured. Almost no fruit. But those who followed, they gathered it by the armful. He'd done the sowing. They'd done the reaping. How many conversions did Jesus see? 
So we must be patient, plodding. It is a plodding work, isn't it? It's never crash, bang, wallop. It's the work of the kingdom. The Jews were expecting the kingdom to come crash, bang, wallop, cosmic, dramatic. It's going to happen. But it doesn't happen like that. So we're hearing it's organic. And therefore it requires sacrificial service. Brothers, we're in for the long haul. Now the third thing to say is this, there'll be many disappointments. Because the two ages overlap, because we're in the already but not yet, there are powerful forces at work in this world resisting the coming of the kingdom. There's the ruler of this age. There's the hatred of this age. There's the hostility of this age and the distractions of this age. So your literature will go in the recycling. But that doesn't mean we stop sowing. And we mustn't play down the cost of Christ's call, hide it in the small print. Actually, this is going to cost you everything for fear of putting people off. And we mustn't come to some sort of accommodation with believers who have got their priorities wrong. Verse 22. Now, he who receives seed among the thorns is he who hears the word and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word And he becomes unfruitful. Why thorns? Well, if you know Genesis 3, thorns speak of the curse. In other words, the realities of this age choke out the realities of the age to come. Are these people saved? No. They get what Jesus is saying, but at the end of the day, the king doesn't have their heart. At the end of the day, they're more at home in this world than the world to come. The distractions of this age conquer because these folk have never truly belonged to the age that is coming. That's why these distractions lay hold of them, because they belong here. They're part of this age. And ultimately, there's no fruit, and they revert to type. And these people break our hearts, don't they? They do. We've, they've been beside us. We've prayed with them. We've, we've, we've labored with them. We've maybe converted even under their preaching. They break our hearts. But you see what Jesus is saying? Ultimately, nothing has gone wrong. They are just reverting to type. So expect three discouraging soils. And yet, number four, there will be a harvest. The kingdom will come. But he receives seed on the good ground. As he who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and produces some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. So brothers, we never, never, never lose heart. Now seed doesn't look much, does it? You know, I used to, I used to keep budgies. It wasn't really worth putting on the thing about I used to keep budgies and, and we used to breed budgies. Well, budgie seed doesn't look very much, does it? It's a seed, it's just a... But the effect of seed is dramatic. I was walking around an abandoned World War II bunker. It was made of reinforced concrete. And in places, seed had fallen down between the cracks in the concrete. And it had germinated and it was forcing the concrete apart. Extraordinary. It was powerful enough to break reinforced concrete. And the seed of the kingdom is powerful enough to break the hardest of hearts. 
However unpromising the situation, there is nowhere where we should be afraid to sow the seed of the king. So we know Tim Whitten. He was a, a student here. And when he moved to uh, the manse uh, in uh, South London, uh, the garden had been abandoned for, I don't know, ten years. Um, completely overgrown. Every thorn in the world deeply rooted. Well, how do you transform a garden like that? Well, you could turn a flamethrower on it. But if you really want to transform it, you sow the right seed, don't you? You sow the right seed. We never lose heart. He received the seed on good ground as he who hears the word and understands it. And there's fruit. Some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. In other words, the word of the king is contagious. It's aggressive. It's expulsive. It's transformative. There will be a harvest. A harvest of Christ-likeness. A harvest that exceeds all expectations, says the king. And the fifth thing to say is this. Four soils. So who decides which is which? The king himself. We have close relationships with churches in Sri Lanka. When I first visited in uh, 1999, there was the mother church at Temple of Gammon. Uh, perhaps 300 believers there. The church was 10 years old. Uh, they were all first generation believers. And there were two little church plants, which we as a church were supporting. There was one in a place called Paliutu, maybe 15 believers. And the other was in a place called Mutur, maybe six believers. Well, 16 years later... Paliuta is still going well. It's grown. Muta has grown to a church of 200. It's planted three more churches. And indeed, 30 more churches have been planted in that area. And another nearly 30 fellowships, which may, under God, become churches soon. Thousands have been converted. And all against the background of tsunami, civil war, persecution, militant Hinduism... Now, who's done it? Have they found a magic formula? Is there a silver bullet? What, what have they been doing? Well, they've just been sowing the word and telling people about Christ. They've had no resources, no money, no education. Those who go with the word have got no... They come from Hindu backgrounds. What do they know? They know very little. But they go with what they know. They have cottage meetings. They invite friends. They tell them. Those friends may turn against them, threaten them, bully them, attack them, seek to murder them. Everything's against it. They have no resources. They have nothing. But God has done it. And ground which for generations has been barren is now yielding a harvest of Christ-likeness. And all that, while that's been going on in Sri Lanka... We in Twickenham, we've had our gleanings. A little here, a little there. So who decides the fruitfulness? Maybe after generations of fruitfulness in the United Kingdom, the king is now saying, it's Sri Lanka's time. It's Iran's time. It's a time for sub-Saharan Africa. The blessing came, the blessing's gone. 
The blessing Paul enjoyed in Corinth, he didn't enjoy anywhere else. Why? Because the king said, I have many people in this city. Not all ground was equally fruitful. Which may mean, brothers, in your situation, nothing has gone wrong. Maybe the Lord is calling you to clear the field of stones. Maybe he's calling you to fight an heroic rearguard action. That like one of David's mighty men, you are going to station yourself in a field of lentils with your sword drawn. And you're going to fight till the sword cleaves to your hand. And that you'll be the only one. But it will be heroic. And it will be remembered in the annals of heaven. And maybe you're preserving the gospel in your village, in your situation, for a generation that is yet to be born. These things aren't in our hands. It's the king who decides which ground where and which is to be fruitful. But the kingdom will come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Well, our third point, we've had some principles, I don't know if it's a dirty word or not, let's have some pragmatism, some practicalities. I, 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 I'm preaching this pulpit, Spencer, I, I always feel like I'm preaching with a bayonet at my back here because there's a drop and I like to move around but I'm always frightened of falling off the back of this. So, there we are, I'll try and, I'll try and move around a little. Um, some pragmatism. I feel a little bit like this is sort of like, I hope it's not, sort of version of the evangelical Christmas crackers. You know, you pull a Christmas cracker, you find a little bit of paper inside and you, you unroll it and it gives some, some little bit of wisdom and you screw it up and throw it in the bin and forget about it. I hope it doesn't sound like that. But anyway, here's some suggestions, some pragmatism about growing conservative churches. Number one, we need to be communities of love. We've uh, already had this scripture read to us over the course of the last couple of days. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. So I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Now we can talk at length, can't we, about what love looks like. But here are some suggestions to promote love in your church. First is sickness and death. That's good for promoting love. Uh, Evelyn, uh, in our church, um, was much loved in her 50s, dying of cancer. And her family weren't coping and because the women in our church loved Evelyn so much, they rolled up their sleeves, they got stuck in, they acted as one, and they were cooking, cleaning, sitting with her, taking her on hospital visits, organising lifts, and there was amongst them hundreds of acts of kindness. Evelyn said to me, I, I want the Lord to get the glory from my illness. And he did. Because what happened? As the women began to work as one, rivalries stopped. People stopped curling in on themselves. And the church began to feel the love. 
wouldn't want to broadcast this too far, but when I went to Amy and Park Chapel, I think it was perhaps one of the most unfriendly churches I've ever been to. There were notable exceptions, but it felt a very unfriendly and unloving church. Evelyn went to glory. But the women who started doing all those things forgot the reason they started doing it. And they carried on doing it. And the church began to feel the love, the ministry of sickness in our churches, the ministry of dying. And Evelyn's story has been repeated a number of times in our church. God used it to kickstart things. House parties. When the whole church family can go away together. We started off having a weekend because people could only really commit to a weekend. But soon a week, weekend became a week. A week's holiday where the church goes away together. Where folk really get to know each other. We, we move beyond the, hello, how are you? I'm fine, thanks. How are you? Oh, I'm great. Where people live independent lives in the little boxes. They commute, they come home, they're exhausted, they've got kids, they've got television, all the things that go with that. And they just meet on a Sunday. We move beyond that. We have to start having to share lives. Which moves on to sharing joys and sorrows. When you're living cheek by jail, you have to start overlooking faults. Forgive freely. It's a place where there's silliness and fun and just enjoying being with each other. You don't have to baptize everything with a solemn prayer. There's laughter. And yet there's a seriousness under the word. And prayer meetings start to have a crackle. And all the ages are interwoven. And you have some very significant godly people. But they're exposed now to a, a larger group of people. And they can see what a godly life is beginning to look like. And new friendships are established. And there's that horrible, miserable clique. But it gets broken up. Because they can't stay together. Because of the new relationships which are being formed. And it's a taste of heaven. And it, you can feel the mood change as the week goes on. And that one week pours itself back into the other 51 weeks. And it's a powerful witness. The house party we've just had. Uh, we were at a school and uh, staff there commented. They had different parties during the holidays. They said, when we have the Muslims, and it comes to mealtimes, um, well, the women sit on one side and the men sit on the other side. They said, we have, we have Jewish parties as well. And the Jewish, Jews, they just stay in their own families. So when you Christians come, you're all mixed up. All the ages, all the families, and you seem to enjoy being together. Now, no one's, we're not flagging up saying, we're Christians. But the impact of love seen, the world exposed to that love, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples. What's more I can say under that? We're going to have to move on with time. Saying this, number two, we need to be communities of power. Acts chapter 4. The Jerusalem church faced its first major set setback. Peter and John are forbidden to speak in the name of Jesus. So what do they do? Do the Jerusalem church bemoan they have no friends in high places who can speak for them? Maybe they all sit down and start writing letters. Do they say, well, it never used to be like this. I don't know what's going on. What do they do? Acts chapter 4, verse 23. And being let go, they went to their own companions and reported all the chief priests and elders had said to them. So when they had heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord. They had a prayer meeting. 
and said, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the mouth of your servant David has said, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot vain things? They remind themselves and they remind God of Psalm 2. And what is Psalm 2? It's a psalm where Messiah is rejected. But it's a psalm that ends with Messiah seated upon the throne of the universe and the Father promising to give to him the nations as his inheritance. His reign is irresistible. In other words, we see with these eyes a hostile world. We hear with these ears the threats that they make. And if we look at one another, who are we? Who are we to stand against them? But whatever we see with these eyes and hear with these ears, what do we know? It's a language of faith, isn't it? What do we know? We know that Jesus reigns. Verse 29, Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And they spoke the word of God with boldness. Do we know prayer times like that? It's been said, isn't it, sometimes our prayer meetings are like organ recitals. You know, Mr. Smith's heart, Mrs. Jones' kidneys, and you go around the organs of the church. <laughs> By all means, pray, not so much for the organs, but pray for the brothers or sisters who have those organs. But we should love our powerlessness. Don't you love your powerlessness? I think it's wonderful. We should exalt in our powerlessness. You see, if we could do it, if we had the resources, if we had the, if we had the, the friends in high places, if we could pull the strings, we wouldn't need the Lord, would we? but I hope you believe you are the scum of the earth. And you are earthen vessels. We're weak, broken. We're the little people. There are very few and noble of anything of any regard. It's perfect, isn't it? Because that's the wonderful arena for God to display his glory. So that if there is blessing, if the kingdom does come, well, it can't be down to us. It's not our doing. We're nobodies. Because the king is on the throne. It's his doing. And he gets all the glory. Do you want to get someone's attention? You simply say to them, I remember when you once said. Isn't that what they do here? We remember when you once said. <laughs> Pray down the promises. Third thing to say is this community is shaped by the gospel. A brother asked his church, how many unbelievers did they know well amongst them? And the answer came back, almost no one. We know no unbeliever well. Maybe they were too busy going to the meetings of the church. We can have a bunker mentality, can't we? Yeah, we're all inside the bunker, we're praying. Someone gets worked up, they decide to go outside. 
We open the door. They charge out. We shut the door. And on the outside, we have these terrible screams and shouts, followed by a hammering on the door. Let me in, let me in. And we open the door. They come in all bloodied and bruised. They say, oh, it's terrible. They, they don't want to hear the gospel. So we stay inside and we pray until the next time when someone feels stirred up enough to go out. And of course, in the meantime, we develop our own subculture as a church. The walls go up. So if anyone does come in from the outside, we look like a big load of oddbods. And our evangelism can become so meeting-bound, can't it? So we have an evangelistic meeting. What happens? Well, a handful of people come in from the outside. And someone will say, oh, it was good to see them there. And usually the person who says that is the person who's never invited anyone to such meetings. And someone will say, oh, church is doing evangelism. We had a meeting in the last... There were six people from the outside have come into a meeting this year. But is it evangelism? Of course we have evangelistic meetings. And I'm not making light of, if one comes in, that's enough, isn't it? We rejoice in that. So I'm not making fun of that. But you understand what I'm saying and the way we can think and our people can think in the churches. The best work of evangelism is done where our people are. Jesus said, as the Father sent me, so I send you. So what did he do when he came? Well, he mixed with all sorts, didn't he? He was in all settings and situations. We haven't got time to go through them. He befriended all sorts. And our folk in their families, in their streets, in their workplaces, between them they probably know hundreds, maybe thousands of unsaved. And they need to know that that's the mission field. The only Bible those unbelievers are ever going to read are the lives of our people. So sometimes a lot of people, we need to let them relax a little bit. When it comes to evangelism, it becomes a very threatening situation. It becomes confrontational. Well, God does make confrontational people. And there are sometimes, it's right to have a straight talk. But our people need to relax a little bit. God has placed them around all sorts of unconverted people. So let them live friendly lives, porous lives, generous lives, kind lives. Let them love their neighbor. If their neighbors are miserable and hard to get to know, well, encourage them to show some heroic love towards their neighbor. And get the church behind praying for their settings and their situations and their pressure points. And that time when they have to jump in and say something about the Lord. But what does Jesus say? Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. What is he saying? He's not saying, well, when they see you, they say, oh, you must have a great God. He's saying when they see that life overflowing with the beauty of Christ, it will break down walls. And some of those neighbors and work colleagues and friends will come to bow the knee the great God that you serve. And this is like a PS under this one. Maybe if we're seeing few conversions, let's give financial support to churches overseas which are seeing conversions. Where they are seeing great opportunities. We supported two Sri Lankan evangelists. It hardly cost us anything. 
two churches were planted. What did those two churches then do? They prayed for us. They prayed for the brothers and sisters who had supported the work. And they felt a bond, they felt a love for these people they didn't know and hadn't seen, but have felt it was important enough to support the gospel in their country. They prayed for us. And then God heard those prayers, and we saw conversions. It's wonderful, isn't it? You say something as grubby as money, but, and you give it for the gospel overseas. You plant potatoes, and you reap spiritual gold. Four things to say. I know you're running out of time, but we're nearly through. We need to be communities of hope. That third piece of ground, where do the dangers lie? They lie in things that don't appear to be dangerous. The distractions of this age. Now he who has received the seed among the thorns, he who hears the word and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. The cares of this world. Oh, what's that? That's just family, mortgage, job, health, holidays, sport. Deceitfulness of riches. I work harder and longer to get a better standard of living. They're things that everyone does. They don't appear to be that dangerous, do they? But that's the danger. So what will get our people to uproot the thorns? A confident expectation of what will be. We know Jim Elliot's saying, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. But do our folk know what they're gaining? If they know what they're gaining, if they know what they'll never lose, they'll be happy to give up what they can't keep. But if they don't know what they're gaining, they'll tend to hold on to what they think they have. And the thorns will infest their hearts. So brothers, let's tell them about what they cannot lose. Is your ministry marked by hope? How often do you preach about glory? About the new heavens and the new earth? The resurrection? The parable of the talents? Christ's return, our wedding day, when we shall see the King in his beauty and want for nothing more. And for young people, this is a generation that has lost hope. My son and his uni- one of my sons on his university course, they started with 200. At the end of three years, 10 of them had committed suicide. Because the mentality was, this is the only life I've got. Let me burn it out. And when it's burnt out, I take it. Lives without any hope. No hope. All I have is what I see and what I touch. And when I grow tired of that, I take my life. So let's preach hope. The gospel is the gospel of hope. It's not all now, is it? It's the already but not yet. So let's tell them about what's to come. And nearly at the end, number five, we therefore need, to pre- we therefore need communities which are in, who are in love with Christ, don't we? Because that's the, that's the supreme thing. A brother went to a discouraged church. He's a good preacher. He preached good sermons. He preached and told them to be up and doing for Jesus. But it was a discouraged church. And the more he preached to be up and doing for Jesus, the more discouraged they became. And the more frustrated he became. 
So the more he preached them about being up and doing for Jesus. But the more he preached about being up and doing for Jesus, the more discouraged they became. And the more frustrated he became. So the more he preached them about being up and doing for Jesus. And of course he and the church party company. So what went wrong? Well he told them to be up and doing for Jesus. What the Christian life was supposed to be. But how often did he tell them about Christ? About his loveliness, beauty, majesty, glory. They never sat beneath the cross and caught the healing stream. Broken, weary, discouraged sheep. They needed the healing stream. They needed Yahweh Rofi, the God who heals, who turns bitter experiences into sweet waters. They needed the healing balm of Calvary. They need to see the open tomb. They need to hear that day when he ascended and the gates of heaven stood up straight because the king of glory is entering in. And the coronation, the voice of the father, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. And the day when he will return. Brothers, let the wonders of his glorious love expel all other loves. And capture the hearts of our people. You know, we talk about you know, the expulsive power of a new affection. And again, young people. We want young people in our churches. That is what they're looking for, isn't it? They live in a, a virtual world. It's a world of broken promises. A world of broken relationships. A world of letdowns. When you come from a broken home, you have no home. They're suspicious of this world. Everyone around them is pretending. It's a Facebook world. How many friends do I really have? How much do they really like me? Would they ever stand with me? It's a world that isn't genuine. That isn't real. That isn't face to face. And they're looking for reality. They're looking for authenticity. And they can sniff it out when it's not there. So give it to them by preaching about the surpassing wonder of Jesus Christ. And when they hear that, they say, that's it. That's it. That's the one I've been looking for. The lion and the lamb. And finally, it needs to be a community that's led. As pastors, as under-shepherds, we're called to love, we're called to protect, to feed, to guide, to lead our sheep. And the problem is often that's just too much. It's too much to do. Uh, Ian was referring to it yesterday, uh, Richard Baxter. You know, his ex- what he says, he says, I often find that 30 minutes talking things through face-to-face achieve more than 10 years of preaching. <laughs> and we know that, don't we? We preach to our people and we sit down with think. Not understood any of it. But often we don't have 30 minutes face to face, do we? Really? The tyranny of the urgent. And we can preach our hearts out and there's little change. And maybe it's because there aren't enough shepherds or mature people who can sit down face to face where there is accountability. Where is the opportunity to to talk and discuss and to encourage and instruct? 
Um, maybe our people know a great deal in one sense, but then they, they don't live it out. He has my commands and keeps in his he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. They know so little of Christ, because although they have a lot up here, they don't live out and obey what they know. You'll know the illustration. You, can, you have four people. There's one who is sick in hospital, one's an inquirer, one's a grumbler, and the fourth one is a godly believer who causes you no trouble at all. Who's servant-hearted. Which one do you spend time with? Which is the one who gets left out? Which is the one who causes you no trouble at all? But that's the one we need to prioritize. That's the one we need to spend time with them. They have real potential. They're a godly, fruitful, Christ-centered, servant-hearted, foot-washing believer. They're the one we need to spend time with to cultivate their gifts and graces. You remember it says of Jesus, he appointed 12 that they might be with him. We need these people to be with us. To train them, to teach them, to develop them, to grow them. And then we need to give them opportunities to lead and to serve. Because if we do, then there'll be, well, at least two of us to visit the sick and help the inquirer. And they can deal with the grumbler. It means taking calculated risks, doesn't it? It's always risky. It means developing in our church a culture of training. So our folk don't always expect to see the pastor there. And it's okay, nothing's gone wrong. And it's okay for those who we're seeking to encourage and train and develop to, to make a complete hash of things. It's all right. They can, they can mess up and make mistakes. And we need to challenge men, particularly. Often those who show wonderful graces, often their life is sucked out of them by their work, by their schedules. Maybe they need to take a change of pace Maybe to work four days a week and have a lower standard of living, but that frees up another day, then they can serve the Lord in the church. He's talked seriously about that. If the kingdom of heaven is everything, if this world is passing, then like the pearl of great price, you have to sell up everything to possess it. You have to challenge our men. Not sit down with a happy accommodation that it's okay, but of course they can't because they've got a really important job. And we train men and we train women until they get it. Until our DNA is all over them. Because they see what a church really is about. That it's a body. A body where the different parts and life and capacities are going to be developed and grown. So the body edifies itself. So it grows, goes on and grows into the measure of the fullness of the stature of Jesus Christ. To the glory of God. My time is through. Let me finish with this. I don't know how you feel. When I preach on Sunday, Monday, I'm just exhausted. I say to my wife, tell me what to do. Because I don't know what to do. I just have a screensaver going around my head. Nothing's going on. Tuesday, I'm depressed. That's just the pattern of the week. Because I'm emotionally exhausted. Tuesday, everything. Give me news on Tuesday and it's terrible. It's a disaster. It's a tragedy. So give it to me on Thursday, I'm fine about it. We have lots of discouragements, don't we? We're often in discouraging situations. That's not, though, the same as being discouraged. I can't serve God a hundred years ago. 
and I can't serve God in a hundred years' time. The king has called me to serve him here and now. Which means there has never been a better time to live for Jesus Christ and to declare the glory and honour of his wonderful name until his kingdom comes.